This is a show about getting spooked for fun, and neither one of the hosts are associated with the attractions discussed in any way. Except for those skeletons in Devin's closet. Some topics may go from ghoulish to ghastly, so viewer discretion is advised. Welcome to The Great American Scream. I crave violence. I want no. violence. 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 Yeah, violence. Well, just do kidding. I... This isn't a violent podcast. This is an anti-violent podcast. Don't be. Well, you know, violence no. is a tool uh, for some people. But <laughs> I want violence on this episode of the podcast. Adam, give it to me. Well, I have a very special treat for you then, because today. Yes. We are going to talk about a history of horror's most famous and popular subgenre, yes. the slasher film. Violence achieved! It's time. We're going to talk about where they came from, where they're going, and how they... <laughs> how made... much gas they have left in the tank. And how have they made horror what it is today. All right, let's do it. Right. By Hi, the way, this is the, the Great, Great American, American Scream. Scream. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm Devin Wright. I'm Adam O'Connell, and I'm super excited to talk about slashers today. It is a film genre and a horror film subgenre that I think often gets kind of uh, generalized, or we start to refer to all horror films as slashers, mm -hmm. which uh, poses the question, what qualifies as a slasher movie? Like, when you think of a slasher movie, what do you think of? The hash-slinging slasher from Spongebob. I mean, that's, that's fair, because yeah. that's where the that the that came from tropes like this yeah, but I'm so correct. yeah what qualifies a slasher movie is highly contested in the uh, horror community well it doesn't have to be anymore i just answered it yeah according to uh notoriously 100% always correct wikipedia um mm -hmm. a slasher film is defined as quote involving a killer murdering a group of people usually by use of bladed tools ah so Jaws, the a slasher Jaws, film. A slasher film. The bladed uh, tool is the teeth. What's the? Who's the the demon barber? Sweeney Todd. Sweeney Todd slasher film. Slasher. I mean, I would also kind of call Sweeney Todd a slasher though. Oh, okay. So a lot of the time, uh, the term slasher has been like colloquialized as referring to any horror movie that involves killing, but most like horror fans and filmmakers and stuff cite an established set of characteristics and tropes that make a slasher movie what it is. So usually films that are considered slashers follow a formula of a killer with some sort of past trauma or event that led them to killing, and then the anniversary or coincidence of said trauma reigniting or re-inspiring a killer to uh, begin killing or begin killing again. Okay. Can you, like, give an example of, like, something like that? So um, Friday the 13th, which we're going to talk a lot about. Yeah. Friday the 13th, if you haven't seen it, spoiler alert, but uh, Friday the 13th, he, the Jason Voorhees drowns at Camp Crystal Lake because the camp counselors were uh, having non-Christian, non-monogamous sex in the okay. 1950s, and which traumatizes, spoiler alert, his mother, which leads her to enact a vengeance on uh, the 
uh, counselors of the camp. So anytime she sees camp counselors being naughty in any way or not paying attention Mm. to the kids, uh, it reignites this trauma, which leads her to killing them. Gotcha. Yeah. And that we'll see that thread um, kind of become common uh, in a lot of slashers. But so some of the tropes and themes that are common in a lot of slasher films, one of them is the stalk and murder sequence. So we've all seen this in horror movies before. It's been parodied to the death of a uh, a chase scene involving the killer, uh, usually stalking a f- usually female victim. And a lot of the times, uh, not all the time, but sometimes the killer is moving rather slowly while the protagonist is the one panicking and running. And The nightmare gosh. scene with Freddy Krueger. Yes. She's like running and looking back and you're mm-hmm. like, you can obviously run faster than that. Yeah, it's uh, that that's... One. Uh, exactly. A chase scenes like that. We see him in all sorts of slasher movies. On that, the final girl is probably one of the biggest tropes of the uh, final girls exist in other horror subgenres as well. But it's probably most prevalent and was perhaps invented in the slasher genre, arguably started with um, Sally Hardesty in Texas Chainsaw Massacre in 1974, as she at the end of the film is the sole survivor of the uh, group that gets stranded and uh, kidnapped by the cannibal family. Uh, The final girl is a usually female, virginal, sole survival, sole survivor rather, at the end of the movie, left to face the killer alone. And she usually overcomes him through, uh, I guess, her like Christian version powers, or she is rescued by a male authority figure, like a police officer or a family member or somebody. Yeah. And uh, you shared a few videos with me about slashers and that there is a, a very like, Catholic way to view this of mm-hmm. uh, chasteness allows survival and promiscuity is bad, but you can also flip that on its head in that what's actually killing the teenagers in a lot of ways is the parental and authoritarian insistence that chasteness is survival. Mm-hmm. And so the killers can embody that uh, authoritative or institutional power. Yeah, we well. talked about that it's when cool. we talked about uh, man car, hook hand, car door. Where right. kind of on its surface, it's a it's a pro chasteness. Yeah, it's a story, moral tale. Yeah, when you think about it in the context of the time period, it's about adults punishing young people for promiscuity. Right. Um, and because yeah. slasher films are often commentary on uh, sexual promiscuity, especially in teens, the final girl is often virginal to represent how the chaste survive whatever is going on. Yeah. And fun fact, the term final girl was coined by Carol J. Clover in her book, Men, Women, and Chainsaws, Gender in the Modern Horror Film, which any horror fan should read or just film fan. It's an amazing book. Um, And she suggests that in slasher films, the viewers first share the perspective of the killer for like the first half of the movie and then shift to that of the final girls for the second half of the film. Because I feel like when you watch a slasher, you're kind of following that too for the first half when you haven't really grown attached to the people dying. You're kind of like on the side, not on the side of the, you're kind of rooting for the killer a little bit. But then now that that. you've grown attached to the final girl by the end of the film, uh, you are rooting for her to win. Yeah. And the flip side of that coin is the death by sex trope. And if you are not the final girl, this is probably what happens to you. Um, and a lot of the inciting incidents for slasher films involve sex, like um, Friday the 13th, like we talked about. Yep. And a lot of the time, the victim, the first victims are engaged in sex while the murder is happening. And Friday the, tr- the 13th is so good because the, the shot of the guy falling, like with the stab wound in his mm-hmm. belly 
and blood coming out of his mouth is so good. The acting going on. And I'll talk about the acting because the Tina's nightmare moves. scene, I have words for the boy in that scene. Because <laughs> Tina is working it. Tina is Tina really is, going for is it. Performing. And all the boy is saying is Tina. Just <laughs> really frustrating as an actor. And another uh, common slasher trope is that of the anti-hero, and most um, horror franchise villains kind of take on this quality, as the fran- a franchise will follow the efforts of the killers, not the victims. I think right. one of the few exceptions of that being Scream, uh, where yeah. it follows Sydney and Ghostface is different every time. They are often given comedic one-liners like Chucky or Freddy Krueger, or tragic backstories like Jason or Michael Myers. So the audience sympathizes with them on some level, usually not a super deep one, um, but on some right. level. And this is why in many horror films, we begin to root for the killer in some way. Right. It's a it's a it's the filmmakers giving you an excuse to be like, oh, well, he's OK to kill them because this happened to him, which is a really interesting tactic, especially when we look at it from a gender politics standpoint that Mm -hmm. it reinforces this idea that like men who commit atrocities if they are some in some way traumatized or have ever been wronged in their life that they're somehow justified Mm -hmm. which is obviously or not even obviously but most likely not intentional on the on the side of horror movie creators but it definitely you can make that link yeah and i think in uh if we're talking about franchises as well the the sympathy sympathy the sympathy being able to be, be sympathetic with the killer yeah. is uh, important from a franchise standpoint because you're going to, if you want to make more than one movie, you're going to want audiences to want to see the killer again. Right. And we've talked about how horror is the most profitable movie genre and therefore their franchises will be even more profitable. Mm-hmm. So, of course, you want, you, you kind of need that to execute. And um, like we said, uh, back to kind of like the final girl and death by sex point, uh, a lot of slasher films have themes of uh, catharsis in relation to sexual pleasure. Um, but and because sex and violence in horror films are, or in slasher films rather are so often put together kind of hand in hand um, because slasher films have their roots in sexual politics and culture, which we'll discuss a lot more shortly. Um, and a lot of these tropes kind of come from the sexual revolution of the 60s, 70s and 80s. And uh, we'll talk about exploitation films in a moment too. And kind of, uh, this film trend, but sex and violence in slasher movies are very often, I'd say the line is very often blurred between them. Yeah, I'd agree. So let's talk a little bit about the origins of where the genre comes from. So people taking pleasure or entertainment in watching violence is not a new thing. Yeah. I mean, think back to ancient Rome with gladiators fighting lions, each other. We as a culture, and we watched public executions for a long time right renaissance england they would do that and bring light uh blood warning uh they would like bring goblets and stuff to like drink the blood of these people which is gross that even up to 19th century and guillotines yeah totally it's not a new thing in american culture and you could get into hours of discussion about why humans (laughs) enjoy violence so much and part of that is because of catharsis right that's you know literally its own podcast just to talk about why humans enjoy violence so a few particularly violent films, notably uh, Maurice, Maurice Turner's The Lunatics in 1912 uh, existed in very early filmmaking. But uh, films like The Haze or uh, The Haze Code rather put a cap on that for a while. 
Um, right. Although we still had the kind of like madman on the loose style films that inspired slashers, like the films of William Castle, Agatha Christie books, stuff like House of Makes Wax. Sense. It just wasn't as violent as a slasher film because it, it, all the same right. themes of them being stalked by a killer, but none of the blood, guts or sex. And uh, slashers were also inspired by things like 1960s horror thrillers. So films like Psycho, which featured limited gore, like very limited, but right. followed other Slasher tropes, including the kind of sexual undertones. Splatter films, which are films that deliberately focus on violence and gore, such as George Romero's Dawn of the Dead, which actually coined the term splatter films. George Romero. George Romero, I feel like a uh, chaotic neutral member of the podcast. That's fair. I think that's a fair sort for George Romero. Creamy films... That's K-R-I-M-I, not (laughs) C-R-E-A-M-Y. These were actually post-World War II German films based on Edgar Wallace's crime novels. These had their own genre and were specifically referred to as such. The common tropes of these, they would feature villains in bold costumes, uh, jazz scores, and murderers terrorizing London. This seems like my kind of movie genre. Oh, yeah. And I, again, we see can, like especially villains in bold costumes, a kind of yeah. we see that permeate today. And also Giallo films, which are Italian crime and murder mystery films, are mostly about extremely stylish jet setting adults being pursued by unidentified killers. And this is the genre where we get movies like Suspiria from this kind of high concept very fashionable horror film, very clean I, lines. That that phrase, just yeah. myst- murder mystery films about extremely stylish jet-setting adults being pursued by unidentified killers. Mm. Yeah, it's good. It's, that's so good. And then also, like we said earlier, exploitation films were a huge, huge inspiration for slasher movies. So exploitation yeah. films were shown in uh, drive-ins and grind houses, and grind houses were kind of Movie theaters where you would go for the stuff you really couldn't get in uh, your your local neighborhood. And they theater. were yeah, and they were started as like a as like a screw you to the MPAA and their mm-hmm. rating system. So uh, exploitation films advertised their sex and violence as kind of like the drawing factor of the movie, and they would often exploit current events or trends. So films like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which if you watch any of the trailers from it, it was all about how just how violent this movie was. Yeah. And then movies like The Town That Dreaded Sundown, which is based off of um, the Texarkana Moonlight Murders that we talked about in uh, mm-hmm. the Urban Legends episode. Yeah, I think yeah. so. Yeah, where we started to get uh, films that were being based on or exploiting actual events. And these were the films that uh, exem- really exemplified the counterculture versus conservative battle the most, as many older viewers thought that the exploitation of violence in these films was simply too much. Yeah. And but they, they were, were like, they blew up. They were hugely popular. The trailer of Texas Chainsaw Massacre is is wild because it doesn't it doesn't look like a movie. It doesn't read like a movie trailer at all. Mm-mm. And then at the end, you have this announcer going like, even if even if one of them survives, what will be left? It's yeah. like, are you talking about the movies or are you talking <laughs> about just kind of culture right now? Yeah, I I love like eight, 70s and 80s movies trailers like that. We need to bring back the narrator. Like, I know it's the thing now to have, especially horror movie trailers, just have the text, but we need to bring back the narrator saying the scary title. I liked that. Yeah. And the, uh, like you said, this kind of counterculture battle that was going on is so interesting because we can talk about the way that, like, 
when we talked about Sam Raimi, we talked about how horror can so easily become comedy and it uh, creates an environment where like satire is kind of hard to nail down and exploitation films are so often meant to be satire. Uh, I think of like, uh, I think it was mentioned in the video, which when I saw it, I was like, oh, hell yeah, Black Dynamite mm-hmm. is like one of the best exploitation films ever. And it is purely a uh, satire of black exploitation films, mm-hmm. which is like the fact that that artistic movement was going on at the same time that this like bigger cultural movement is going on is so fascinating. Yeah. And we're as we talk about kind of this era, uh, we get into the what's referred to as the golden age of slasher films. Ooh. and kind of where what we know as a slasher film today comes from. Um, it's generally regarded as being from the late uh, 70s to the early to mid 80s. Um, it was arguably really popularized by uh, John Carpenter's Halloween in uh, 1978. So Halloween basically solidified every slasher trope that we know today. The stalk and murder, the final girl, the death by sex. I mean, like Laurie Strode, Jamie Lee Curtis, is the final right. girl. Yeah. We're going to do an episode about Jamie Lee Curtis, Adam. It's going to happen. Okay. And since Halloween was such a hit at the box office, many slasher films started to to, uh, take pages out of the Halloween book, uh, so to speak, as well as amping up the sexuality and violence. As Halloween was violent and Halloween had sexual undertones, but compared to a lot of other slashers, like, not as much. Right. It wasn't like, it wasn't gore. It, It was the kind of movie where, like, parents would be like, oh, I guess it's not that bad. Like, yeah, compared like to some it. other yeah, stuff you may have seen. Um, and Texas Chainsaw Massacre predates Halloween as it came out in 74. Um, but it was one of the biggest inspirations uh, for Halloween because of Texas Chainsaw's uh, drive-in success. Hmm. So uh, Golden Age slasher films exploited the hidden dangers of places like summer camps, college campuses, and high schools, all places typically associated with youth counterculture. Naturally, there is no coincidence that... Uh, the golden age of slashers predated and was just before the rise of new conservatism in the United States. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense that a lot of teenagers growing up during that time might be like, maybe they've got a point. Yeah. When a Stranger Calls, 1979, also came from this era, which we also discussed in the Urban Legends episode. That's the uh, Babysitter and the Man Upstairs movie. Mm-hmm. And once we hit 1980 and Ronald Reagan was elected president, this is Enemy where... Enemy of the podcast. Yeah. Enemy of the podcast, Ronald Reagan... This is where new conservatism really got in gear and people became very concerned with rising violence in film and exploitation films. This was also the year that Friday the 13th came out. It was the year's most successful slasher film, but also the most criticized as it was considered an exploitation film uh, at the time. And it set a new bar for on-screen violence. Yeah. Good job, Friday the 13th. Woo! Yeah. Um, and of course, it's two sides of the same coin. Uh, these films were criticized by conservative groups for their content, but the films did paint sexuality and counterculture in a negative light where the virginal right. and Christian character got to survive. But new conservatism wasn't concerned with that. They were solely concerned with just how much violence and naked people were in these movies. Right, because late 20th century and early 21st century conservatism is very, 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 very caught up in aesthetics Mm -hmm. and not very caught up in policy or artistic vision or anything like that, which is why it falls to a form of proto-fascism by this decade. It's because fascism is also very much couched in aesthetics. But we don't Um, need to talk about that. Let's move on. (laughs) So this was also a time where more problematic tropes in slasher films were brought to light and criticized. 
So with the rise of feminism in the United States, along with counterculture and queer activism, uh, films like Dress to Kill, which you talked about in the uh, LGBT episode, yeah. Cruising and Windows, which all connotate homosexuality or queerness uh, and femininity with psychosis, were criticized by uh, various groups, including the National Organization for Women. Um, Thanks now. But also, this age gave us a ton of low-budget, non-major studio-backed films, things like My Bloody Valentine, The Slumber Party Massacre, Taurus Trap, Silent Night, Deadly Night, and uh, like 100 Friday the 13th sequels, which yeah. when you're not being backed by a major studio, you don't really have a good budget, but you can get away with a lot more. Right, and with with horror, a lot of... The charm comes from stuff that is made possible through not having a lower budget. But also, My Bloody ba- Valentine has a very good trailer. I love it My Bloody like Valentine. It's like a very modern trailer. Yeah. Like, I haven't seen oddly. the modern remake, but I like the original. Yeah. So this this kind of uh, golden age of slashers, this trend began to die out in the mid-80s, but was tempor- temporarily revitalized with the release of Wes Craven's A Nightmare on Elm Street in 1984, which then walked the line between uh, fantasy, supernatural horror, and traditional slasher horror. Yeah, I, I mean, the we already talked about the Tina Nightmare scene, but that the chest opening up is very reminiscent of something like Alien, which is mm-hmm. fully a supernatural thriller. Yeah, and the 80s, you know, along with new conservatism, it was a decade of excess. So the kind yeah. of excessive... They were like, we have all this fake blood. Yeah, let's just of the economy is so good. Let's just turn the whole room upside down and put Johnny Depp inside the bed and then dump out 150 million gallons of blood onto this rotating set. So after this uh, era, we kind of move into the advent of home video, which was, I mean, we all take home video for granted in our modern lives, but this is huge. This is a whole nother podcast. You could watch movies at home now. Um, I love a VHS. This would be around from 1985 to 1995. um, And as the popularity of slasher films died down and the advent of home video, studios began to try and make horror movies as economically as possible so they could send them straight out to VHS and people could buy them at home. Because here's the other thing, too. If it didn't come out in the theaters, you couldn't watch it before you bought it. So even if it sucked, you bought it. You still bought it. Yeah. So at this point, without major studio backing, slasher movies were second only to pornography in home video market popularity. The two things people were buying the most for VHSs in the 80s and early 90s was porn and slasher movies. Yeah. And all these parents were like, oh, no, it's the death of our American culture. Honey, did you get did you get the next part of that porn video series we were watching? Okay, good. (laughs) Do we have a blockbuster card? (laughs) Um, So many theatrically released horror films like Nightmare on Elm Street, Sleepaway Camp, and Silent Night, Deadly Night um, became home video series. So a lot of their sequels didn't even go to the theaters. It just went straight to video. Like a Disney sequel. Yeah. The second Nightmare on Elm Street film, Freddy's Revenge, the very excellent gay one. uh, It was theatrically released. And although it was extremely rushed by the studio, it came out. I think less than a year after the first one, it was the highest grossing horror film of 1985. It's also the best movie ever made, so that makes sense. This is also the era that gave us both Candyman movies uh, and the first three Child's Play movies, uh, which also both of those walk the line of Supernatural and Slasher in the same way that Nightmare on Elm Street did. Um, We're kind of seeing less of the Halloween Friday the 13th style, like no supernatural involved, except for later in the franchise when they started to throw supernatural stuff in. And we see this kind of more of a fantasy horror thing happening yeah you can kind of see 
what I'm sure was present, which is this kind of push and pull in the horror community of whether supernatural elements make something like a slasher better or worse. Because when you don't have any supernatural stuff, the killer is just at the end of the day a man. And so like you just have a scary story about this guy who kills a bunch of people. Whereas supernatural, there's an element of a loss of control mm-hmm. uh, and a kind of like which makes you sense also, for the 80s. Right. And you also, if those kinds of movies started happening today, you could totally see the MRA YouTubers being like, how did this final girl kill this slasher when he's a supernatural being? That's unrealistic. Cinema Sins 1. <laughs> ding, Cinema, ding. Yeah. So we also got a ton of Friday the 13th sequels in this era, none of them performing particularly well. And that's this now, um, when we associate horror and horror franchises with like a cheapness, this is a lot of where that comes from because we're, these studios are just churning out sequels because people will keep seeing them because this became an era because of the excess gore and the excess sexuality. People didn't particularly care if the movie was good. If they could right. get blood and guts and nudity on their TV for... they were gonna buy it and it's studios realizing that they they can take an art form that arguably was pretty artistic in the start of it even with stuff like slashers and they can just pump out sequels and so they go oh those those sequels that they made without our support made a shit ton of money for them and we didn't get a bite at the apple so let's Mm -hmm. just throw a few hundred thousand dollars at these and just let them go Oh, yeah. Um, so uh, Wes Craven's uh, 1994 A New Nightmare kind of launched a new era of slashers that's kind of like a postmodern take. This would be kind of like 1996, like the mid 2000s. Uh, but A New Nightmare kind of did it even before Scream Adam, did. Yeah. You sent me this trailer and I Heard thought I was watching like an Onion article video or like a parody. I was so confused. I can't believe that's a real film. Oh, yeah. Um, so A New Nightmare did it, albeit in a uh, part of his, as part of a series and in a different way than uh, Scream did. If you haven't seen A New Nightmare, watch it. Um, it took place in a meta universe where Freddy had exited the film world and was now in our world, haunting the actors from the original film series. I live for actors playing themselves in films, like from a, from like a, from like a personal artistic and political standpoint, I hate it. And I think it represents the death of all <laughs> all culture and art. But as a viewer, I love it. It's God. so good. And so then Scream obviously went on to slam dunk this concept in 1996. Really, really changing what the It was 1996. Film. The dunk was big. Dun- Michael <laughs> Jordan huge. took Scream and slam dunked it. Um, it was really changed what we think of as a slasher movie and the horror as a genre, as we talked about in the horror comedy episode, um, because Scream is nostalgic for the golden age of slashers by using those tropes, but also appealed to uh, newer audiences with like popular actors and pop music and kind of like commenting on those tropes. Uh, yeah, it's, and it's very late 90s uh, self-aware in the fact yeah. that it like in that like pop version of self-aware where just mentioning the thing is intriguing to people mm-hmm. uh not not a like not a self-conscious or a self-reflective thing but just a self-referential yeah thing and it is still to this day one of the highest grossing uh slasher films of all time pretty good 1997's i know what you did last summer followed in screams uh, footsteps in this way adam can i can i admit something to you yeah i thought that i know what you did last summer for most of my 
life up until probably the first time you mentioned it on this podcast. I thought it was some kind of a coming of age YA movie. No, it's about a bunch of people who hit someone with their car. Yeah, I know that now. Now I only I knew hear that they, the stupid I knew that they Shawn hit... Mendes song or whoever sings. Who is it? Charlie oh, Puth, Shawn Mendes? They're all the same, man. One of them. I thought, I knew that they hit a guy with their car, but I thought that was just like, a, you know, in Paper Towns, they find a dead guy in the beginning. I thought it was sure. kind of like that. Okay. This era also gave us Bride of Chucky and Halloween H20. Uh, Still H2O. Riding. <laughs> Still riding. It's the mermaid one. On the series uh, bandwagon. And then around the turn of the millennium, we all we start to get uh, remixed slasher films that deviated from the standard formula. So movies like Final Destination in 2000, where the killer is literally death itself, but otherwise mm-hmm. follows the kind of typical formula of a slasher movie. And we also get psychological slashers like American Psycho also in 2000. Yeah, which seems to be also a remix of like a Giallo film yes. with its like very crisp aesthetics and almost by being giallo-like but being about consumerism and capitalism almost itself is a commentary on giallo yeah i mean i love slasher movies where rich people are involved because of this kind of yes. aesthetics i think one of the best scenes in um us was the one where they were at like the really the the the, the other families like really nice lake house and all of their yeah. uh, heather we, were chasing them through that it was great yeah we we danced around it, but we know why people went to guillotines. Yeah. <laughs> shops. Like we know. We know why people like the purge when like all the all the rich, like barricaded people die. Like we know. We Yeah. Um We all know. We know. And, <laughs> you know what you're talking about. And we also start to get a lot of remakes and reboots in this era Boo. as far as slasher films go. Uh, Halloween reboots, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Boo. Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street. Stop we had a lot. Them. None of them were okay. very good with the exception of like some of the like the timeline of Texas Chainsaw Massacre is so confusing to me. Um, but I know that some of the parts of the remakes and the reboots are good. I've heard some of the Halloween ones are okay too but here's my controversial take is that i don't like the halloween movies i like the first one i but wow. i think i think there's like michael myers is so boring to me i love laurie strode and jamie lee curtis but i think my myers is so boring. yeah well i think when you talk about uh franchises following uh killers and that there is there are some exceptions to that i think halloween following jamie lee curtis that not all of so. them follow jamie lee curtis well, yeah but they should like yeah <laughs> like that would have been bad. Yeah, no, they all typically follow uh, Michael Myers, rather. Um, but so that's kind of led us into this current age of where we are now with slasher films um, and kind of what they've become. A, a big kind of advent in the slasher genre uh, in the past couple of years have been home invasion films. So stuff like The Purge, um, You're Next, The Strangers, where instead of um, they, they've kind of canned slasher films into one like finite house area yeah um which Which i think we can oh go ahead no i was gonna say like i think comes from this uh uh a new american like suburbia fears and that's exactly uh, what i was gonna say yeah kind of a throwback to what we were afraid of in like the 50s and 60s yeah it's very much a early 2000s bush conservatism being afraid that people who aren't like you are gonna move to your suburb and it reeks yeah, it sucks um, that horror oftentimes knows that the way to make a compelling and successful film is to prey on the fears of what is considered mainstream, which is often white, straight, 
yeah. rich cis people. There's a reason that in the 50s, uh, alien and uh, alien movies and uh, sci-fi movies were so big because we were yeah. afraid of uh, things that weren't from our own country. <laughs> and we were also we also knew that we could probably blow anything else off the face of the earth. So the only thing we were really afraid of was something bigger than that. Yeah. And also in the, the modern day, um, slasher TV has become quite big in shows like um, American Horror Story, which not all of the seasons have like a slasher theme, but some of them do. Yeah. Love American Horror Story. Um, Bates Motel, which is also a reboot of Psycho, but right. is a slasher TV show. Um, <laughs> Riverdale, which I know, <laughs> but Riverdale is but, a slasher yeah. TV show. And yeah. same with Pretty Little Liars. Right. I, I think that what we're seeing here is a weird like infusion of uh, people realizing like oh teenagers are kind of the biggest proponent of like these slasher type films and they're also the biggest proponent of these like teen drama tv shows what if we just mash those together which is kind of sad that that realization came uh within the last decade because if it came in like 2007 2008 we could have seen a version of Glee that had a killer oh, in it would have been so good i mean what is riverdale but Glee with murder. <laughs> Glee with murder. Uh, I just like the idea of like you have like Blaine singing some sad, some kind of sad song, and then it keeps cutting to like I don't know, Quinn running away from a dude with a big knife. Yeah. <laughs> um. We've also gotten some more remakes and remixes, and a lot of um movies that are like attempting to like finish off their franchises. So I know Halloween. Um, yeah. I think in 2021, they literally have a movie coming out called like Halloween, like the end or something like they're trying to cap it off. I don't know if it'll work, but they're trying right. to do it. And they're what they're trying to do is capitalize on the idea that their fans want them to kill the franchise. Yeah. <laughs> and what they're hoping is that that one will be so successful that they I'll can have to make another uh, one. Yeah, they can justify a reboot. Yeah. Yeah. And um, but a remake that I'm really excited about is the uh, Jordan Peele produced Candyman remake is hopefully coming out in November. Um, it was yeah. uh, or October. I know it was supposed to come out in like September and they pushed it back because of everything going on. So hopefully it'll uh, come out soon. The trailers like not, not trailer, but uh, like a little preview is out. It's going to be so good. I'm so excited. It'll be interesting to see what Jordan Peele does with not a original concept. Yeah, I yeah. mean. Candyman often plays with a lot of the same themes that Jordan Peele plays with in his uh, yeah. films. And, like, I would consider Us a slasher movie as well. Yeah, I think so. At least has it having its roots in the genre, if it's not, like, a typical yeah. slasher. Because there's no real, like, Final Girl um, or, like, gratuitous sex. But right. a lot of the same, uh, a lot of similar things that we see in more like 90s slashers kind of show up in us as well yeah and i think what we can find throughout talking about like all these different th slasher films is the specific uh steps of the formula that a movie does or doesn't adhere to aren't as important as long as the formula itself feels similar if that mm -hmm. makes sense us does feel like a slasher film which probably makes it one rather than the fact that it doesn't have a final girl but like right it still feels like one. It kind of goes back to I was very interested in the fact that you didn't define horror or slasher films by the formula they use, but rather the idea of the like past trauma and this mm -hmm. killer coming back to it. So there are definitely more than one way to define a slasher, and it might just be the kind of 
the aura of the film, you know? Yeah, because the genre has expanded and changed so much that you can pretty much look at any horror movie and find its roots yeah. in some kind of slasher trope. Right. And and obviously, like, that's just how movies be. They all yeah. borrow tropes from across genres. And I know a and, lot of people say that, like, oh, they don't make slasher films anymore. They still make slasher films. They just look different, different. than they did yeah. in the 70s and 80s. And For sure. Yeah, and I'm excited to see what do they do with them next. Ooh. In before somebody makes a stupid freaking quarantine slasher. I mean, it hasn't I it talking, already happened? They've already yeah, been Zoom horror but, movies, which I think would be a good concept because, like, I know people dunk on the Unfriended movies. I think they're pretty good. I just remember that dude sticking his hand in a blender. Yeah. The second one's great. I think the second one's better than the first. Unfriended, like, Dark Web or something. Yeah, I was talking to one of my colleagues and we were talking about the fact that there are certain procedurals who are doing like quarantine episodes and i know you know this isn't the podcast for it but like <laughs> i think we all agree that what the kind of art that we want regarding the quarantine is like helping us get past it yeah not i don't want <laughs> sitting in it i know like because for some cultural moments like the way that a lot of people want to process it is through reliving it or th seeing it relived on a screen but like mm -hmm. i don't know if anybody wants to relive this no nope. i think we feel pretty fine definitely not me maybe in like 50 years <laughs> maybe but i don't want to make it or be in it yeah i'm good i think i'm good at I, adam i think i'm good i think i'm good too okay <laughs> thank you guys so much for listening to this episode 28 of the great american scream if you enjoyed it you can leave a rate and review if you're on itunes if you're on spotify you can follow which really helps us out or you can share the episode there's a little share button that makes a little nice little social media post but the best way to spread the word as always is to find a friend who likes to talk about getting spooked and tell them about the show the best way to yeah. grow the show Adam, this will come out on september 1st right i believe so Happy Halloween. Oh, my God. It's the two-month Halloween season begins. Happy Halloween, I guess. Uh, I'm sorry that there won't be one, but... Uh, uh, hey, Halloween is in your heart. You don't... Right. What do you think? Yeah. What do you think? Halloween's not about going to parties or, or, or gathering in large groups of people. Halloween is about having a spooky spirit. Would you cancel <laughs> Christmas? No. There is going to be a Halloween. You do Halloween however but, safely and good that you can Jesus, do Jesus... Jesus is born no matter what. Yeah, and, and the great pumpkin appears no matter what, Devin. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. Adam, can you pimp our social medias, please? Yeah. If uh, you can follow us on Facebook at The Great American Scream or on Twitter and Instagram at Great Scream Pod. Um, send us your favorite slasher movies and also what you're going to be for Halloween this year. Um, and post it using the hashtag TGAS. If there is something you would like to hear about on the show, if you have a suggestion, you can post or tweet at us as well, and your suggestion may become an episode in the future. Yeah, a special thank you goes out to Michael Segudo, who does the intro for the podcast, and also to Stevie Viola, who does the music. I believe that's it for us, though. I've been Devin Wright. I've been Adam O'Connell. And hopefully you have been spooked. By a scary slasher hookhand man. By the hash slinging slasher. Just run safely. And always run out the front door. Stop running upstairs and slash your movies. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>